for another episode of the It's Murder Y'all podcast. I'm your host, Amber, and with me today, the man who once accidentally poured a beer on my face, my husband, Rob. Say hey, Rob. Ouch. Hey. It wasn't a whole beer. It was just... It was a, a lot bit. of it. It was about a swaller or two. No, sir. It was a much more than a swaller. We were at the know. we were at the beach, and I was napping with my head in his lap, and he apparently also napped. I've been his, doing day drinking with his beer in his hand, and beer just right on my face. I wiped it off. No, you didn't. I helped wipe it off. I'm sure you did not. It's been a long time ago. I don't really remember, but if I had to guess, I would imagine you probably did not. But I'm anyways, sure no. So. <laughs> There are no trigger warnings for this week's episode, and hopefully I won't have to do any last-minute voiceovers. But I did want to throw it out there that this week's episode might be a little bit shorter than previous episodes, depending on how chatty and tangential we get. Also, I kid you not when I say that I literally like hit save having finished writing this episode and told Rob, hey, let's get started. So this is hot off the press, and I have not read through it, so... Rob, you are again on duty of paying attention. God help us to make sure that I don't say shit stupidly. Can you do it? You you sounded like you said shit just fine just now. (laughs) I hate you. Anyways, let's go ahead and get started. Michelle Lee Cartagena was born in Monterey, California on May 2nd, 1975, making her a Taurus. Michelle's daddy, Luis, was a, a lieutenant colonel in the Army, so they moved around a little bit. They finally settled down in Columbus, Georgia in 1990. Michelle thrived in Columbus, and she was that girl that was literally good at everything. She played tennis and volleyball, was captain of the softball team, and ran track. She was a member of the National Honor Society, Key Club, Beta Club, and the Science Honor Society. In her free time, she volunteered for the Red Cross and the Humane Society, and was a tutor at a local elementary school. She also, Hmm. unsurprisingly, graduated as valedictorian of Spencer High School's class of 1993. And don't think that I don't want to go off on a tangent about how I was robbed for being valedictorian, but I won't do it. I will save that for a Patreon episode one day. So in addition to being smart and athletic, she was, of course, drop-dead gorgeous. Um, And you could tell by looking at her that she... She was a sweetheart like that. You could tell. Yep. She's a good person. She was described as energetic and sweet tempered and a natural leader. And her daddy described her as, quote, a gifted and talented young lady full of love and life with the aspirations of pursuing a medical career to help others and to make a contribution to society. End quote. Michelle's smile truly did light up a room. And we've all listened to enough true crime to know what that means. Now, because Michelle was such an amazing human. Sometimes and, I wonder what people say about me when I'm dead and gone. Your smile definitely does light up a room. So you need to watch your back. I ain't got to worry. My smile, as we've, as we've established, my smile ain't lighting up nothing. But <laughs> you, you have a pretty smile. Thanks. But yeah, no, you have like a lights up the room, like eye twinkle kind of smile. I don't know about all that. You're gassing me up now. No, I'm I'm being truthful. I try to I I try to like <laughs> not make your head any bigger, but I can't lie. You gotta yeah. So because Michelle was such an amazing human and basically guaranteed to be successful in whatever she did, she was offered a scholarship to Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. 
So Mercer offered her an athletic scholarship for tennis and an academic scholarship. So that is where Michelle decided to start working towards her goal of becoming a physical therapist. So in addition to playing tennis at Mercer, Michelle did what a lot of college ladies do, and she joined a sorority. Robert, do you want to guess which sorority Michelle joined? Alpha Delta Pi. She sure did. 80 Pi. First, finest forever. There we go. Look at you. (laughs) So Michelle joined 80 Pi, also known as Alpha Delta Pi, which as we know, is a sorority that I am an alumna of. So a couple of fun facts about 80 Pi. Also, I can't talk tonight. Uh, Our motto, as Rob just said, is first, finest forever, because we were the first secret society for women ever. Like we were number one. Originally called the Adelphian Society, 80 Pie was founded on May 15th, 1851 in Macon, Georgia at Wesleyan College, which is a, a private liberal arts women's college. 80 Pie currently has 161 active chapters throughout the United States and Canada. And Michelle was a member of the Beta Sigma chapter of 80 Pie, which was founded in 1937. So in spring of her freshman year at Mercer, Michelle met Grant Hendrickson. Grant mascot's Hendrickson. a lion. It is, Alfie. Alfie. And, and our symbol is diamonds, and our flower is, uh, it's, I forget the exact. Diamonds? Shut up. I should know the specific kind of violets, but they only grow in the wild, and, and you can't pick them, so we use African violets as our flower. And our colors are blue and white. And they probably have a fancy name of blue and white, but I can't think of it because it's been Oh, the time. days of you rolling around in those 80 pie flip-flops. Yep. <laughs> I'm endlessly impressed that you noticed them the first time we met. I, I still I had to have, get my hooks in. You did. I still have those jokers. I love those flip-flops. Those were first stringers for a while. Oh, for sure. So in the spring of her freshman year at Mercer, Michelle met Grant Hendrickson. Grant Hendrickson, actually his name was Patrick Grant Hendrickson. He is also a member of the Middle Name Club. Uh, Grant was studying electrical engineering and physics. Holy crap. You got to be smart for that. And he was planning a career in acoustical, acoustical, I copy pasted, acoustical physics. So I'm going to guess. So sound science. Yeah, basically. I'm going to guess that he wanted to work in music, like on the music side of acoustics, because he played bass in a band. And. Excuse me. That came out of nowhere. What was that? I sneezed. (laughs) That was a funny sneeze. It snuck up on me out of nowhere. I hope I never have to sneeze on this podcast just because of how I sneeze. Pretty funny. I sneeze. Like, like a rat? No. House? No. Yes. Like, I know you talk about how I sound like <laughs> I am only four feet tall. I sneeze as if I'm about two feet tall. I have a very, like, comically cartoony high-pitched sneeze. I guess to clarify to the audience, when I say that you sound <laughs> tiny when you speak, I hear you talk to animals. That, and how yeah. you talk about animals and you talk about animals a lot, I guess. So. I do. <laughs> like I live, our kid, our kid uh, always likes to comment about how I sound the exact same every time I see a dog, which is always a puppy. I don't care if it's 17 years old. That's a puppy and bunnies. And sometimes I talk to pebbles in a voice that is so high pitched that I'm I like, hear it every now and then. only dogs can probably hear this because I'm going up. I'm almost like Mariah Carey whistle noting with this voice, but I sneeze. That's how I I sneeze like that as well. So yeah. So Grant was wanting to do acoustical physics, which from what I learned about him, 
would make sense because he played bass in a band and he was volunteered as the sound guy for the Macon Little Theater. He was also on the board of directors for the Macon Little Theater. So Grant was a Macon native and he had been born on September 20th, 1972, making him a Virgo. Side note, I was thinking about this the other day. And although you are only what, like months older than me, I don't consider, I don't consider you a millennial um, because just who you are, like you do nothing millennial-ish. Except for you sing the Doug theme song a lot, which I don't know, I don't know why I do that. You do. It's funny. Um, do you want to make any more face noises? We've got a sneeze. We've got a throat. Well, that beard. sneeze dislodged some phlegm, apparently. So I'm kind of trying to silently deal with that. But you are calling it to the forefront. Yes. Um, but what I was saying about millennials, because you're probably not going to agree with what I'm about to say, but I guarantee you that there are millennials that will. My concept of time is messed up so like when i like i can't reconcile the fact that people born in the 70s are now either in their 50s or approaching their 50s because my brother was born in the 70s i'm gonna call him out he doesn't listen to this but my brother was born in 1973 he's old as shit he is 50 my brother's 50 he doesn't like being old in my head like 50 is not that old well no but in my head the 70s were 30 years ago like in what world were they 50 years ago? Absolutely not. That was 30 years ago. Like, I just, I always think of my brother as being like 30 years old. I'm like, well, that math doesn't math because I'm 30 something and he's 13 years older than me. But do you not think of the 70s that way? No. See, you fail. You're not a millennial. I mean, I, I don't think about the 70s, though. You know, I don't know. If you are a millennial and you're listening to this, I need you to go to the It's Murder Y'all Instagram page. And comment and tell me that you also have a misperception of time and it feels like the 70s were 30 years ago and not 50 years ago. So, yeah. So, Grant was born. He would be 51 years old. He was a Virgo. He and Michelle seemed like a perfect match because he was just as bright and involved as she was. He was a cheerleader at Mercer. He served in the Student Government Association, so the SGA. He made the dean's list. And he was pledged class president of Pi Kappa Phi fraternity. And I would imagine that his involvement in PiCap is how he and Michelle met. And I have been to many a PiCap party in my day. So Grant and Michelle, like, literally were the cutest couple. Like, they looked so good together. And several people predicted that they would eventually get married. Like, they were soulmates. So we're going to fast forward to January 2nd, 1995. 19-year-old Michelle and 22-year-old Grant have been dating for almost a year. And they had just celebrated Christmas together. On the evening of January 2nd, the couple decided to go out on a date in the brand new white Honda Accord that Michelle's parents had given her for Christmas the week prior. So they go out to dinner, they go see a movie, and then they decided to head over to a place on Lake Juliet called The Point, which is about 20 miles from Macon. From what I gathered, The Point was like, it's like a little lover's lane situation where people would go park and make out and such. Stuck face and whatnot. Yep. They'd go necking um, (laughs) around... 12.30 a.m. on what is now January the 3rd, nearby campers heard what they thought were gunshots, and they saw a blue Honda CRX speeding away from the area. So the next morning after the sun had come up, the campers went over to the area where they had heard the shots, and they came upon a grisly scene. They found a white Honda Accord full of bullet holes with the window shot out, and sitting upright in the driver's seat of the car, they found the body of Grant Hendrickson, And on the ground, about 25 feet from the car, they found the body of Michelle Cartagena, 
The campers called the police and the investigators from the Monroe County Sheriff's Office hauled ass over to the scene. So from the amount of blood in the car, the police figured that Grant must have been the first one shot. In addition to the multiple shots fired through the car, it was clear that at least one shot was from close range. Um, and I don't think I include this later, but I think they it was almost 20. They found almost 20 shots total at the end of the day. Damn. According to Sheriff John Biddick, quote, there was no question that whoever did this did this with the intent to kill the people that were in that car, end quote. Michelle had been drugged from the car, most likely while still alive, and had been partially undressed. Police also found some brown fluid on her leg, and that fluid ended up being tobacco spit, which how fucking gross and degrading and disrespectful. Like, first of all, I feel like spitting on somebody is one of the worst, grossest, most disrespectful things you can do. But dip spit? How nasty. Pretty rowdy. Like, that is trash. So... While investigating the crime scene, police found shell casings from two different weapons, a 223 AR-15 assault rifle, similar uh-huh. to th- uh-huh. similar similar to those used by the military. I thought and to it- myself a minute ago, 20, 20 rounds fired sounds like either they had multiple magazines for a pistol or they had an AR. And I was right. <laughs> they well, they, they also had a 9mm Ruger handgun. Okay. This made police wonder, though, if they could be looking for two perpetrators, because those are two, I'm guessing, very different weapons. So before they well, could die, the the Ruger is a pistol, and the other one is like a a, a military style rifle, a tactical style, whatever you want to call it. Uh, before they could dive into looking for the monster or monsters who did this, they had to identify the victims. Well, thankfully, Grant and Michelle's wallets were in the car undisturbed, which must not have been a robbery because there was no money taken. Um, So it didn't take long for them to make the IDs. So at 10 a.m. on January 3rd, Grant Grant Hendrickson's mother, Mary Hendrickson, arrived home from grocery shopping when she received a call from from the Monroe County Sheriff's Office telling her that Grant had been killed. She told the investigation discovery show Murder Comes to Town that her initial thoughts were a car accident, which I feel like anyone, like if you hear that your 22-year-old son has been killed, you're not going to think that they just got murdered and like shot to death. Like you're going to think, oh, car accident. But then the woman on the yeah. phone told her that he had been shot and she was befuddled. It's unclear how exactly Michelle's parents found out. One source said that Grant's mama called them, but another source alluded to the police calling them. So I'm not sure. What is absolutely devastating about this case is that Michelle and Grant were their parents' only children. As a friend of Michelle's mentioned on Murder Comes to Town, Michelle with her parents, everything, even her gravestone was inscribed with the words, our pride and joy. I'm going to try really hard not to cry, but it's going to be hard. Um, According to one source, Michelle's daddy visited her grave every day for years. Like if something happened to our kid, I don't think I could go on. Like I would follow, you'd have to bury me with her. Like I couldn't do it. I don't, I don't know how they did it. Yeah. It'd be pretty shitty. So police, (laughs) police, it would be real shitty. Police talked to Michelle's family to see if there was anyone that they could think of that would want to hurt Michelle. First, they were like, absolutely not. But then they were like, hmm, there's this one guy. So James Thompson was a guy who had liked Michelle, but she wasn't interested, but he wouldn't leave her alone. So police talked to James. And according to him, on the night of the murders, he went home after his shift at work ended at 930 and he was there by himself all night. Now, Columbus, where he lived, was only about two hours from Juliet. So he would have had the time to get off work, drive to Juliet, and murder Michelle and Grant by the estimated 1230 a.m. murder time. 
So after some more questions, James invoked his right to an attorney, and he refused to talk. He also refused to provide his DNA sample. But finally, his attorney relented, and as it turns out, the DNA was not a match. So it was not James Thompson. So police went out to Mercer, and they interviewed everybody within Michelle and Grant's circle, but they didn't get any leads. Like, they were literally perfect, and everybody loved them, so no one could fathom how someone would want to murder them. At some point in the investigation process, police learned that Michelle's daddy, Luis Cartagena, was an instructor for the Army School of the Americas, which trained soldiers and police from Latin America in counterinsurgency and combat-related skills. And this was, uh, I believe, at Fort Benning. Unfortunately, some of the program's graduates had participated in some pretty egregious human rights violations, and there were some activist groups that were protesting the School of the Americas. Police wondered if maybe Michelle had been a target of one of those activist groups, but it was ultimately just realized that... Seems like a stretch. Yeah. Her daddy's position wasn't high level enough to warrant something like that. So investigators were back at square one, and they decided to enlist the help of an FBI profiler. So although the police had initially theorized that there were two killers because of the two different weapons, the profiler said that the brutality of the crime led him to believe that it was one very demented, hate-filled killer. He also mentioned that one of the weapons, a Ruger P-89, was a gun sometimes used by police. So the killer might be a cop or have ties to law enforcement. Investigators kept on investigating, but they had no real leads. So they turned to, dun-dun-dun, Unsolved Mysteries for help. The episode aired on September 27, 1996, and the segment was titled College Student Murders. If you're interested in watching it, you can actually find it on Amazon. It's Season 9, Episode 2. Shortly after the episode aired on Unsolved Mysteries, GBI agent Randy Upton was brought in on the case. Randy Upton was a retired military investigator, which, according to the Monroe County prosecutor, meant that, quote, he was a very meticulous individual, end quote. And I figured you'd appreciate that, my meticulous former Army man. I would say people would say some shit like that about me if I, when I die, he was meticulous. That's why I said it. You are. That's probably a thing. You're nothing if not meticulous. <laughs> so Agent Upton was bound and determined that he was going to do anything he could to get this case solved. So he decided to do something a little unorthodox. He went and talked to the death row inmate named Timothy Carr. So Timothy Carr was on death row for murdering a 17-year-old boy in Monroe County in 1992. Well, Timothy fit the pro- the psychological profile of the killer. Like they knew that he didn't do it because he was in prison, but he fit the profile of the killer. So Agent Upton believed that he might be able to provide some helpful information, like get into the mind of the killer. So according to the dramatization on Murder Comes to Town, Timothy asked if the victims were rich kids because he had gone after rich kids because he'd hated them. And so uh, Agent Upton was like, well, how would you identify rich kids? And Timothy said, well, somebody in a new car, which, as we know, Michelle had just gotten a brand new car the week before for Christmas. Agent Upton then asked Timothy how he would have gotten rid of the weapons. And Timothy said that he would have sold them, adding, quote, do you know how much you can get for an AR-15, end quote? According to Upton, Timothy said, if you want to find the AR-15, it's in a pawn shop. Timothy also told Upton that he would know the killer when he found him because he would accuse police of trying to frame him. Who said this? Timothy, the guy on death row. Like, he is telling the the GBI agent, like, look, from the perspective of a guy that has murdered, like, this is what you're looking for. You're going to find the gun in a pawn shop. And when you find him, he's going he's going to say you're trying to frame him. So uh-huh. with that information, Agent Upton 
headed over to the largest pawn shop in Monroe County, and he asked about anyone who had bought or sold an AR-15 between 1985 and 1995. So the pawn shop owner gave Upton a list of more than 100 names. It was going to take weeks to go through each of these names. So Upton prioritized by people who lived closest to the lake, and then he started calling them, and he asked for saliva samples, and he asked if he could examine their guns. So on November 27, 1996, Agent Upton contacted a 22-year-old guy named Andrew Allen Cook, who went by Andy. Agent Upton told Andy that he was investigating the Lake Juliet murders and was contacting Andy because he had owned an AR-15 in 1994 and 1995. Andy told Agent Upton that he had gotten rid of his AR-15 in April of 1994, but Agent Upton called him on his bullshit because the records showed that Andy hadn't even bought the gun until August of 1994. So you couldn't get rid of something in April that you didn't get till August. So at this point, Andy's shit ass came out and he's like, well, my father's an FBI agent and I don't have to cooperate. So Agent Upton asked Andy for a saliva sample, but Andy said that he needed to talk with his father first. So Agent Upton, you know, was like, whatever. His interest has been piqued, though, by Andy. And he starts looking a little bit, a little bit harder into who this guy is. So Agent Upton learns that Andy had pawned his AR-15 back to the pawn shop he bought it from in May of 1995, five months after the murder. Murders. He'd also had an acquaintance buy a nine millimeter, a nine millimeter Ruger handgun for him in December of 1993 from the same place because he was too young at the time to buy it. Interestingly, Andy sold that Ruger to a friend in July 1995, mm-hmm. seven months after the murder. And most interestingly. Andy owned a 1987 Honda CRX at the time of the murders. And if you'll oh. recall, yeah. So That's a lot at, of what they call circumstantial evidence. Yes, it is. Look at you go. So as police would later learn, uh, coincidentally, a couple of days before Agent Upton called Andy, he'd been chatting with a friend at the diaper factory where they worked, which I'd never even thought about the fact that a diaper factory might be a thing. But somehow they come from somewhere. That is true. Somehow they started I worked talking. down there at the diaper factory down there for pampers and whatnot. <laughs> Somehow the two guys had started talking about like, what's the worst thing you've ever done? And Andy was like, I killed somebody with an AR-15. And the friend obviously thought he was full of shit, but he humored him and he was like, well, why would you do that? And Andy told him that he did it just to see if he could do it and get away with it. So then Andy like shut the conversation down, didn't say anything else about it. And they went back to work. Well, the next day at work, Andy got a page because he was super cool and had a pager. Insert eye roll. Uh, so he got the page. He left to call the number back. When he came back to work, the friend that he had confessed to the day before said that he was white as a ghost. Andy told him that he had to go. And he spit out the wad of tobacco that he'd been chewing on. And he told the friend that the GBI had called and wanted to talk to him about what he, what him and the friend had talked about the day before. He told the friend that they wanted to test his saliva and said, quote, that's a DNA test right there. So they got my ass, end quote. So Agent Upton kept trying to get back in touch with Andy, but he could not track him down. So on December the 4th, so this is... So let me get this clear. Yes. He told a work friend, uh, I smoked some folks with an AR-15. That work friend ratted him out. And then they called him and was like, yeah, your, your work buddy ratted you out. That is a great question. And I'm glad you asked for clarification because... I was confused at first when I read it, and I realized that the wording is kind of confusing. No, it was just a coincidence. So the the guy testified about what Andy told him later on at trial, 
But it literally was just a coincidence. Like they were talking about it. And the next day, the GBI agent happened to call. So no, the, uh, the friend did not write him out. It's just everything aligned. He just testified later on. That, yeah. Yeah. But hey, by the way, like. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for asking for that clarification. So I'm, because I'm sure if you were confused, the other people listening were also confused. I get confused easy. It's all good. You're fine. I also talk fast and I wrote this quickly. So, so that was on November the 27th that Agent Upton had called Andy. And so it's now December the 4th and he's been trying to get in touch with him, but he can't get back in touch with him. So he went to talk to Andy's daddy, FBI agent John Cook. Because as it turns out, his daddy was legit an FBI agent and had been for almost 30 years. So Agent Upton tells Agent Cook, Andy's daddy, look, I need to talk to your son about the Lake Juliet murders, but I can't find him. Can you help me? And Agent Cook was like, yeah, of course. Like, I'll find him for you. So at this point, Agent Cook knew about the Lake Juliet murders. Like, he hadn't worked on the case or anything, but he had heard about it because it was so big. And he didn't think there was any way that his son could be involved, but he wanted to help get this all cleared up. So he kept paging his son, and Andy finally called him back at about 11 o'clock that night. And Agent Cook was like, bruh. GBI, the GBI is looking to talk to you about the Lake Juliet murders. Like, do you know anything about what happened? And Andy replied, quote, Daddy, I can't tell you. You're one of them. You're a cop, end quote. Now, Agent Cook could not fathom that his son could actually be the killer. So in his mind, he's thinking, oh, shit, I bet Andy was there. And like, he saw he saw it went down. So Agent Cook asked Andy if he had been there during the shooting. And Andy said yes. So Agent Cook asked Andy if he saw who shot them. And Andy said yes. And then probably to just assuage his own anxiety. I don't know if I said that word right. It's one of those words that I've seen written, but I don't know that I've heard someone say it before. Anyways, Agent Cook asked Andy if he had shot them. And Andy paused and then he said yes. He told his daddy they had been fishing at the lake when him and Grant got into an argument. Grant threatened Andy with a gun. So Andy shot shot Grant and Michelle in self-defense. It was only after he shot them that he realized that Grant only had a pellet gun. So he threw the pellet gun in the woods and got the hell out of there. Now, Agent Cook was shooketh, but he was a man of principle. So he told shooketh, but he was a man of principle. So he told Andy that he needed to go turn himself in. Andy told him that he was not going to do that, that he was going to run away and disappear. And Agent Cook was afraid that he was going to go off and kill himself. So after he got off the phone with Andy, a still shooketh Agent Cook talked to his wife, and then he called his friend slash FBI supervisor, Tom Benson, to tell him the tea. So Benson was actually, which that is such like an FBI name. Benson. Benson. Tom Benson. Uh, Benson was actually at a conference in New Orleans. But as soon as he heard Cook's story, he was like, yep, I will be catching a flight in the morning. So he hopped on a plane to Georgia that next morning. And about four o'clock that afternoon, which at this point was December the 5th, 1996, Benson and Cook headed right on over to the Monroe County Sheriff's Office to tell the sheriff what Andy had said. What the men didn't know was that Andy was already in custody in Jones County because he'd been arrested earlier that day for shooting deer and turkeys out of season and for giving a fake name. Like, this kid is a shitbird. Agent Upton, who did not yet know about Andy's confession to his daddy, headed on over to the Jones County Jail to have a little chat with old Andy. So Agent Upton goes in, he introduces himself, and Andy immediately, with no prompting, just blurts out, quote, it's been two years since the murders and you guys don't have anything. I had a CRX, I had an AR-15, I had a Ruger P-89. You guys are going to try to frame me. Get my father, get me a lawyer, I'll tell you what you want to hear, end quote. So if we remember earlier, what did the guy on death row say? He said he's going to deny it and he's going to frame me. Yep. 
So Agent Upton is like, what the actual? But since Andy has now, you know, invoked his right to a lawyer, Agent Upton leaves. Well, he then touches base with Sheriff Biddick in Monroe County. And he's like, hey, Andy's daddy is here. And guess what? Uh, Andy confessed to him last night. So Agent Upton grabs Andy and they head on over to the Monroe County Sheriff's Office. Well, after Agent Upton and Andy get to the Sheriff's Office, Agent Cook asks if he could talk to his son alone. And Sheriff Biddick is like, yeah, sure, go ahead. So they go into a room, they hug, they cry. And Agent Cook is like, look, I don't think that what you told me last night was the whole truth. And Andy admits that there was no argument. There was no pellet gun. According to him, quote, I pulled in, the car was already there, and I just stopped and shot them, end quote. And then Andy drug Michelle out of the car, undressed her a little bit, spit on her to make it look like a sexual assault, which seriously. Um, and Agent Cook, his dad, would actually be the star witness against Andy in his trial later on. Um, so essentially what he told the friend was true. Like he just, he wanted to see if he could kill somebody and get away with it, which turns out uh, didn't work out well. And he just, that's what's so crazy about life. People I feel are like. crazy, man. I oh, swear, legit. Dude. But it's so, that's, that is like the weird, crazy thing about life. Like if something had happened and they had not gone there or if they'd gotten there maybe a little bit earlier or later, like they might still be alive. But because this douche canoe decided, oh, my dad's an FBI agent. I wonder if I, I can just, somebody. You just can't even drive to a makeout spot no more. You know what I'm you, talking about? I you just, can. God dang, bud. I'm still I'm still very bothered by the fact that he spit on her with his freaking how tobacco spit. That's so gross. Like that's yeah. even that's even grosser than regular spit. Like ugh, gross. Unfortunate. So, so Andy was indicted on February 17th, 1997. So a little over two years after the murders for two counts of malice murder, two counts of felony murder and one count of armed robbery. So apparently Georgia does not do like first degree or second degree murder. Instead, they do malice murder, which is when a homicide is done with express or implied malice, which I feel like maybe I don't understand what the word malice means, but like, wouldn't all murders be done with malice? What is malice? Let's go look up what malice is. I feel like malice is like a professional courtroom way of saying they was yelling fuck you when they did it. <laughs> well, it's the, according to the New Oxford American Dictionary, it is the intention or desire to do evil. Uh, or ill will. Again, I feel like who's doing I, I feel murder? Like I kind of layman's nailed that. <laughs> you did, yeah. I, I won't disagree. But like, who is doing murder with goodwill? Like, is not isn't all murder with ill will? I would think if you're murdering somebody, you're not doing it for funds. Well, I don't know. It's whatever, whatever. Georgia. Um. So they have malice murder. They also have. I feel like malice also means if you've got hate in your heart. But I feel like if you're murdering somebody, you got hate in your heart, right? I don't yeah. know. I, I feel like I I don't I, I can't accurately other than the, the ways I've described it describe it. Oh yeah, no. What, I, what it I, I, my brain, I, I like. feel I feel like that your description was like for sure, but I just feel like unless it's like an accidental that then that may not be malice. But I don't know. It's it's I didn't have time to like dive as deeply into it as I would like. But so there's malice murder, which he was charged for two counts of that, and felony murder. And felony murder is basically like capital murder because it's murder plus some other bad shit. So mm. two counts of malice murder, two counts of felony murder. I don't really understand the armed robbery because I could never see where he robbed them of anything. But, you know, whatever. So I feel like they just tack on a bunch of shit 
and because they know that the litigators are going to like, well, technically, yada, yada. All right, well, we'll we'll take that one off. But you, you know what I mean? So they slap people in this in scenarios with a shitload of stuff. Because it's what it seems like to me. And then they barter away or, or, or you know, I don't know, compromise I, yeah, the other I, charges away to get to the root of the shit, really. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. Another thing they do, I don't know if you know this, but like when two people are murdered, sometimes they'll only charge them with the murder of one of them. So in case something happens and they don't get convicted, they have another person that they can try them for. So, uh, that seems like there should, I don't know. So true crime side tangent. There is a case, I believe it's from Texas of Darley Routier, um, in the nineties. So according to her, she was sleeping on the couch with her two little boys, um, while her husband and her baby were sleeping upstairs. And according to her, some guy came in and like, stabbed her kids to death and like attacked her well her wounds were could be argued there it's very divided in the true crime community of people that think that darlie routier killed her kids and people that think that she didn't but ultimately when she was tried she was only tried for the murder of one of the little boys in case they found her not guilty because because of double jeopardy she can't be tried again another true crime side tangent why this is important is there was a case, I can't think of the guy's name or the victim's name or where it was, but essentially this dude murdered this chick, right? But they didn't have enough evidence really when they um, when they went to trial and he was found not guilty. Well, a couple of years later, if I remember correctly, someone moved into his old house and like in the, in the walls or something, they found these old videotapes that like showed him murdering this girl. Oh. But, but because he had already been tried and found not guilty... He couldn't be tried again. And then there was another case that I don't. The only thing I remember about it is the guy was like, he was tried in civilian court and found not guilty, but additional evidence came out later and he was, had been in the military. So the military called him back into active duty and then arrested him and tried him in military court. And he was found guilty. I was like, that's a loophole I can get behind. But Yeah. yeah. So in the case of Andy Cook, they, he was charged for both of their murders. So it was pretty much a slam dunk case because a, they had his confession, which his FBI agent daddy can like testify to. I mean, how much more credible can you get? Of It's an FBI agent. Who's his fucking daddy. Who's being like, yeah, he told me that he did this. Also, can we take a moment to appreciate the integrity of agent John cook to be like, this is shitty. You did a bad thing and you have to go turn yourself in. And I'm going to make sure that like, and he loved his son. He even at one point in the trial was like, look, I know he did a bad thing. Like I've testified as an FBI agent. Now I'm testifying as a father of like, I think there's still some good in him. Please don't send him to death. All this stuff. I just feel like he, that shows the amount of integrity that that man has, that he knew what was right. And he did it. Cause I would imagine that would be really, really hard. Yeah. So the confession his DNA matched to the tobacco spit on Michelle's thigh. Nasty bastard. He drove a Honda CRX and they were able to recover the AR-15 rifle and the Ruger handgun that Andy had owned at the time of the murders. They tracked down who had them and they did ballistic tests. And what do you know? Ballistic tests showed that those were in fact the murder weapons. So unsurprisingly, Andy Cook was found guilty on both counts of malice murder and both counts of felony murder on March 19th, 1998. 
He was sentenced to death for the murder of Michelle Lee Cartagena, and he received a life sentence for the murder of Patrick Grant Hendrickson. So Andy tried to appeal his death sentence, and he claimed a bunch of different things. Like One was like mental health, which there was nothing wrong with his mental health. Like He wasn't crazy. Spoiled, maybe. Not crazy. But he claimed that habeas corpus was violated because the court allowed the confession that he made to his FBI agent dad because he claimed that because he did it without a lawyer present and he had asked for a lawyer, that it violated his Fifth Amendment rights. I think it's the Fifth Amendment, which it's like, Hmm. no, no, like that's your dad, which that is kind of a weird line of like, it's an FBI agent, but it's your dad. But I feel like being the dad is more important than being the FBI agent. Also, you know, your dad's an FBI agent. Like, it's not a secret. You know that you're saying this to a man who's an FBI agent. So that's your bad. So the appeals court were like, Nabra, you did this. And his death sentence was upheld. So at 1122 p.m. on Thursday, February 22nd, 2013, 38-year-old Andrew Allen Cook became the first person. Also, side note, he was like 19 when he murdered them, by the way. Like, he was young. That's why I mean, the- that's some bullshit I, for like, I don't know, like the whole I wanted to murder somebody just to see what it feels like is some kind of like my brain ain't all the way developed little boy, probably born a psycho type shit. Yeah. Toxic like, masculinity. Like, motherfucker loved killing cockroaches and shit back in the day. I feel like for sure. Also, like not that you should murder anybody, but go if you're, murder somebody shitty. If you're trying to, to do that, don't murder just innocent people, you know, not again, I'm not advocating for murder. Don't go murdering people, but don't go murder. <laughs> nobody don't need, don't need murdering. murdering. So like I said, at 11, 22, Thursday, February 22nd, 2013, 38 year old Andrew Allen Cook became the first person to be executed in Georgia using only one drug, a massive dose of phenobarbital, which I think might've been what killed Marilyn Monroe, if I'm not mistaken. That old barbital will get you. Yep. Good old barbiturates. So prior (laughs) to Andy's execution, the state had been using a three-drug cocktail, but it had become harder to get all three drugs. They're like, you know what? We're just going to use one of them. Andy's last words were, quote, I'm sorry. I'm not going to ask you to forgive me. I can't even do it myself, end quote. He also thanked his family for their support and told them, quote, I'm sorry I took so much from you all, end quote. For his last meal, Andy requested steak, baked potato, potato wedges, two kinds of potatoes, fried shrimp, lemon meringue pie, and soda. So, Rob, I have to know, what would your last meal be? I mean, I was just thinking, man, that sounds like a pretty slam dunk last meal. I mean, I am a meat and potatoes man. Are you going to have two kinds of potatoes? Because he had two kinds of potatoes. I am not. I have I have ordered two kinds of potatoes before. You probably have, yeah. Yeah, I, I get down on Actually, I have seen you order mashed potatoes or baked potato and french fries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You like I your taters? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so would you go steak and taters, or like, what are you, what are you thinking? Um, and what, and what random ass beverage are you going to ask for? They won't give you beer in prison, just in case you were not aware. Man, if I know that, if I want to go with something I know is not going to let me down, probably a root beer. I knew. I read your mind this time. So, friends and listeners, I guess all of your friends slash listeners thing about rob is he loves a beverage and i all like i never know what he is going to pull out of their fridge is it going to be a cream soda is it going to be a root beer is it going to be a tropical punch is it going to be a grapeco like 
I like I could not go into a gas station and get him a beverage because I don't know what his random ass is going to want that day. Rob, if you had to go into a gas station to get me a drink, what are you getting me? A Diet Coke. Yep. And if it's not a Diet Coke, what is it? Water. Yep. Those are that is one. That's it. Either water or Diet Coke. And your best option is to go ahead and get both. You know, I mean, if I had to, I guess I'd go root beer just because I know it's a safe bet. I told you that the other day. Like you be drinking Lipton. No, is it is it the what is the tea that I make fun the of? Brisk. You? The brisk. You be drinking brisk from a can. Bro, I've been drinking that since I was since them commercials came out back in the day. Those were funny. With yeah. little clay anim, animatronic commercials or whatever. Yeah. Claymation. Okay, back to your meal. I want to know. So we got a, we got root beer for our bev. Uh what's the food part? And what is you gotta have the food, the meal, and the dessert and the beverage. Dessert, bruh. Dessert is gonna be uh a big old bag of Twizzlers. Uh, <laughs> gotta have your chewies. Gotta have them chewies, son. And then probably uh a king size Snicker and a king size Reese's. And then that'll be my that'd be my dessert. What about them chocolate cookies we got in the kitchen? Those are pretty dank. Or those oatmeal, uh, frosted oatmeal ones. Those are all right. Okay, so what about I'm your? Going, I'm going for never let me down, taste a taste but experience. You know what I mean? So Twizzlers, I'm, Snickers, Reese's. Yeah, something that I know is going to just drive home. My taste buds are going to be, I know, be happy about it. You know what I mean? Uh, so I'd probably go steak too, like a big old giant, two inch thick ribeye or New York strip, salt, pepper, garlic powder. Put it on the smoker. Reverse sear that mug. See, I feel like you'd be very critical of how you would want your food prepared for your last meal. I would just say, just let me cook the steak and y'all do everything (laughs) else. Y'all are going to kill me. Just let me cook my last steak. Or I'll just tell you what. You you let me stand there next to the person cooking it and just tell them what to do and when to do it exactly. And then then we'll be be fine. Be a backseat griller. Yeah. Did you have a bread? Was there a bread in there? Man, that's tough. Yeah, I, for me, it would either be a yeast roll or a biscuit. Yep. Biscuit from where? Like just a Bojangs? Like a, a biscuit of, of the of that type. Just a big What about the the old school chur- churches biscuit. biscuit? Some honey butter biscuits? God, good lord. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would be a, a a salute for a good church's best man. I miss churches. That makes me think about Neil, and I miss him. Rest in peace. I don't think I've ever eaten. At we churches. used to walk to churches at least once a week, at least once a week, and get those biscuits and a two piece combo. Or well, I love that man. Yeah, I'm sad I didn't get to meet him. Yeah. Um, so that is that your final meal? Yeah, I'd probably go. Okay. Like that. Now I want to know what do you think my final meal would be? I want to see how a how well you know me and b if you can read my mind. Shrimp and grits. Oh, I hadn't even thought about shrimp and grits. Oh, uh, man. I think this might be one you don't know because I would think I'm pretty random on it. What I would want. Have you eaten? Have you eaten it around me before? Yeah, all of it. I'm thinking like turkey and dressing. You do know me. <laughs> that's that's only 
That is only part of it. Don't congratulate yourself too much yet. That is only part of it. Macaroni and cheese. Yes. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a sloot for macaroni and cheese. Oh, I'm going to crack myself up. You do frequently. I love some foods. So there's a lot more. Listen, I, I that's the only ones I got off right off the top. Okay. So I was a fat kid. So y'all prepare yourselves. This is going to be a big list. If I'm going out, I ain't worried about calories and I'm going to eat like I ain't worried about calories. Number one, not the turkey so much, but definitely dressing. However, only my mother's dressing. Yeah. I knew you would say that. That is it. Only my mother's dressing. Put just a good amount of sage in there. Perfect. Uh, Perfect texture. Perfect. I just mm, love it. Um, Some freaking chicken salad from Marty's at Midday. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Some macaroni and cheese. Either my mama's or... Okay, I know this doesn't exist anymore. But we're going to pretend that it exists. So, remember, Quintard Mall, 90s, Morrison's. The restaurant. It was like the... See, to me, that, that's like on the on the same line as like a Stouffer's mac and cheese. Absol- oh, sir. Absolutely not. That was the greatest. It had... it. The cheese was so cheesy and stringy. It was glorious. I think you were mis- misremembering Morrison's because it Maybe was so. outstanding. Best macaroni and cheese I've had in my entire life. Um, and I'm a ma- macaroni and cheese connoisseur. Okay. So I would have some, uh, I'd have a crunchy shrimp roll. Can I have a little bit of my sushi? Uh, I would have a yeast roll and a Cracker Barrel biscuit. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually don't think I do shrimp and grits, if I'm being honest. Uh I would have a, just the one dish other than dressing. I've heard you go on and on about. Yeah, I think I've gotten over my because it's just it's too hard to get. Well, it's, it's all over the place. And Everybody it's has a reverse of it. Yeah. I would I would want some fried shrimp, just a couple of fried shrimps. Uh, I'd want a salad, but it would be it basically be like a a buffet salad. I want salad, obviously lettuce, whatever, tomatoes, cheese. Ham, boiled eggs, like diced up, and lots of ranch. And some club crackers on the side. Oh, I'd want a piece of buffalo chicken pizza from Mellow Mushroom. And uh, I'd probably start to get be starting to get full at that point. Maybe just a couple chicken and a biscuit crackers. Because those are real good. Those hit with that. Easy cheese in the can that you squirt out. I could see that, yeah. Ooh, that's some white trash kid in me snack. That's what got me to frying up them Vienna sausages that one time. <laughs> yeah, your your country fell out. <laughs> All the um, way. I would go, I would also want a little thing of the melting pot the beer cheese fondue with all the little, with the pretzel bread and the little I feel like veggies. I could make that cheese. Oh, you need to try it. Um, so switching gears onto desserts now, also with the melting pot, I would want that turtle dessert with just the brownie pieces. Cause yeah, so good. Banana pudding, obviously. Um, probably my mother's cause it's real good. Um, Except I think she does meringue and I prefer just whipped cream. A piece of my mama's chocolate pie. We'll ignore the fact that my mama's been dead for 22 years. Um, her She'll chocolate come pie. back on death row and make it for you. A mama would come make me some. Oh, also going back to the food, Meemaw's fried okra. Um, I would probably have a bite of a Reese Christmas tree because 
you know, obviously. For my drink, obviously I'm going to have to chug some water just because I can't. That's why I can't go to jail or prison. I have to have my emotional support water. And you probably can't have that in prison. I just, I can't live without it. But obviously I have a Diet Coke. But do you know how I like my Diet Coke? Do you remember my hierarchy of, of Diet Coke? What is the pinnacle of Diet Coke for me? Uh, this is a true test. And, I, and any Diet Coke connoisseur will tell you this is factual. The fountain stuff with the marble ice? Yep, fountain stuff with the good ice, like the sonic ice, and yeah, a star- little, 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 little nuggets. Ice. Yes, yeah. uh, in a styrofoam cup. Yeah, it is glorious. I would have that, um, and maybe a peppermint white mocha from Starbies. Yeah. Oh, I would. Oh, you can't have beer, liquor. Never mind. No, because uh, I was gonna add some, but then yeah, we can't have that. I mean, a big old fat glass of some kind of brown. <laughs> brown like whiskey. brown liquor liquor i have not had whiskey in a long time which i was having a conversation with in my group chat I with love my whiskey with my two best <laughs> friends one of my best friends did not feel well when she woke up on sunday and she couldn't figure out why it's because she had two glasses of wine the night before and i was like yeah i don't drink anymore because i don't it doesn't hit well the next day but I would like some whiskey. I've not had whiskey in a long time. And I've got my my champagne, my brute that I got to have on Christmas. Yeah. My dirty Santa gift. It wasn't even wrapped. I went over to the pile and I was like, is like, is this an option? They were like, yeah. I was like, this is coming home with me. I was afraid somebody's going to steal it, but they didn't. Okay. So a couple more things before we wrap up. The parents talked about how the deaths of their children. This is, that was quite the segue from alcohol to being sad Uh, the parents talked about how the deaths of their children had impacted their lives grant's mom mary said quote to see your child hurt or ache on the inside and not be able to do anything about it was one of the worst things in the world to learn of your child's death is the very worst still never until i saw with my own eyes my child lying in a coffin did i accept the fact that he was no longer here end quote luis cartagena on behalf of him and his wife chris said quote we don't care what anyone says time does not heal we have lost our only child, and that passion is an emotion that will never go away. Our lives will continue to center around her. Michelle is our pride and joy, and that is not going to change. The loss of Michelle can't be put into words, but suffice to say, Chris and I will never be the same, end quote. And again, I literally can't even imagine. I cannot imagine the pain that those parents went through and probably still go through every day. Like, it truly is every parent's worst nightmare. Like, I know, like, I miss her. I miss our kid when she's at school. Yeah. Like, I can't. Yeah, like, I couldn't imagine. Like, I know we we hardly ever get time, just the two of us. But if she's gone with the grandparents, I love that we spend a good portion of our time like, man, I miss our kid. Like, not ever seeing her again. No, absolutely not. I couldn't do it. Like, I'm barely hanging on by a thread most days anyways. That would be done. That'd be done. Absolutely not. So, lastly, in her obituary, Michelle's parents asked that in lieu of flowers, donations be made to the Ronald McDonald House. So for those of you that don't know, the Ronald McDonald House is the official philanthropy of ADP. Pie. The Ronald McDonald House charities do a lot of great things, but the actual Ronald McDonald House, uh, the houses, they accommodate families with hospitalized children under the age of 21. Some houses, it's 18 or 26. It just depends on the house. Who are being treated at nearby hospitals and medical facilities. So a lot of times, if there's a children's hospital, like in Knoxville, there's the East Tennessee Children's Hospital There's a Ronald McDonald house nearby 
Um, same way in Birmingham. Birmingham they Children's are a customer Hospital. of mine. Oh, Children's. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they're twice a month. Look at you go helping the little children. Helping the children's. When my oldest niece was six years old, she was run over by a truck and she almost died. Uh, hello, oldest niece of mine, because you're probably listening to this. She was in Children's Hospital in Birmingham, which is over an hour away from where we lived. And she was in there for two weeks. And thanks to the Ronald McDonald House, my sister-in-law and my brother were able to stay at a nearby Ronald McDonald House to get a couple hours of sleep each day, as opposed to like, I mean, because if they'd had to drive an hour, just they wouldn't have ever gone home. Like He's that the would, only clown with good hair. He's got mama hair. Yeah, but you know, like clowns usually have like messy ish hair. I feel like that is he, true. He's like a he's like a a non disheveled clown. He's got that mama who goes and gets her hair done every Friday hair. Oh, that's that mama on an Alabama Sunday hair. Yep, sure he is a little bit of a helmet. Mm-hmm. Yep, poodle like yep. poodle. Uh, a very famous line from, well, I don't know if it's a famous line, but a line from the very famous Still Magnolias is it looks like a brown football helmet, except his case, it looks like a red one. It's just nice little mm-hmm. poofy little thing. Um, so long story short, Ron McDonald House, it, it is a great organization. And I recommend that uh, if you have one local to you, that you donate to it, if you can, um, in honor of Michelle Cartagena and Grant Hendrickson. I don't know if they still do, but when I was an 80 pie, I was philanthropy chair and we connected, we collected the tabs from aluminum cans you remember that because i I do i used to tell everyone save me your tabs and i would take them so um i don't know if they still they also take if i'm not mistaken they take donations of you know toiletry things and things for around the house so uh look into that if you can it really is a worthwhile organization so that is the case of what i'm calling the mercer student murders rob do you have any final thoughts it's just a damn shame it really is like these kids, they, they were, I'm going to show you a picture of them later. And I'm Life obviously ain't fair. It is not, I'm going to post pictures to the Instagram, obviously, but they were so cute and they were both so involved and so smart. Like she's going to be a physical therapist. He's studying in freaking electrical engineering and physics, like two of the hardest majors that you, and he's like, what? They were brilliantly smart. both very involved and it's just an absolute shame because this dickwad was like i'm gonna see if i can kill somebody get away with it well no you couldn't so and then like i just i hate it i hate it so thank y'all so much for listening to the it's murder y'all podcast as always sources for this episode will be listed in the show notes as i mentioned the case was profiled on unsolved mysteries it's also on the investigation discovery show murder comes to town Actually, turns out, uh, I probably didn't, I know I didn't tell you this, Rob, but I got us HBO Max so, so that I could watch that episode. Um, nice. Yeah. It, I think it might be on one of the other, like Pluto or whatever those, Tubi, whatever the weird free, but I just, I just did HBO Max. Uh, there's another show, I think it's called Unusual, Sus- Unusual Suspects, but I didn't get a chance to watch it. So I didn't really get any information from the unsolved mysteries i got a little bit from murder comes to town as i quoted in the episode but everything else came from either court documents or newspaper articles but i will list all those in the show notes i've also realized recently a lot of shows don't like list their sources and i don't know if it's the doctoral student me or not but like that bothers me like where are you getting your sources like you don't just innately know these things you're getting it from somewhere where are you documenting where you got that because 
that's low-key plagiarism if you're not saying where you got your information from. Sorry. That's just my thing. Anyways, please subscribe, rate, review, tell a friend, tell your mama. See y'all next week. Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Holla.